Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 113. Today, we're talking about persecution. What is persecution? Will all Christians be persecuted? And how common is persecution in the West? So, happy Monday, friends. I tried to come up with a better intro situation than that, but honestly, my creative brain failed me miserably today. My apologies for such a vanilla greeting. Honestly, you deserve better than that, and I've let you down. It is important to note, however, that I haven't persecuted you by letting you down. Persecution is a different thing entirely, and a discussion about persecution is what today's podcast is all about. Now, as far as segues and intros go, I give that about a three and a half or a four out of ten. Not the worst I've ever done, but certainly not even average or certainly not above average. Today's Bible readings include Leviticus 24, Ecclesiastes 7, Psalms 31, and 2 Timothy 3. Now, at some point soon, we are going to do a big Bible question from Leviticus, probably one about animal sacrifice, and what in the world is that all about anyway? But today is not that day. Instead, we're going to focus on a promise that Paul makes in 2 Timothy 3 that is quite interesting, and not really the kind of promise that you write down on the fridge or you pin to your bathroom mirror or put on your coffee mug so that you're encouraged every time you look at it. The promise is this, In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, In fact, says Paul, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, trivia question for you. How many who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? A hundred? Total? A quarter of the number of Christians? A third? Seventy-four percent? No. Paul says all, all, all. So what in the world does that mean? Let's go read the passage in 2 Timothy 3, and then we're going to come back and Talk about persecution. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Jans and Jambres. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecution and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who, t- those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So let's identify first what persecution actually is. So the biblical word used here for persecution in the Greek is kind of interesting, and it means in its root forms, it's two words kind of put together, a portmanteau, to make somebody flee or run away. Persecution used in a biblical context, and that is to say, I'm going to call it biblical persecution from him from here on out, does not necessarily have to be only physical. You can most certainly persecute someone with words or, of course, be persecuted with words, as Jesus notes in Matthew 5, 11 through 13, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Persecution can have a physical impact or a verbal impact, and it can also include things like shunning, denying privilege or promotion, etc. Basically, biblical persecution is making somebody suffer in pretty much any significant way because of their Christian beliefs. I hear Christians throw the word persecution around pretty regularly. Some argue that they are victims of persecution when it's actually likely they are suffering for their own bullheadedness or bad temper or misbehavior or something like that. Others say that Christians, the, the Christian experience in America and other wealthy nations is nothing at all like persecution. And honestly, I think the truth of the matter is somewhere between those two polar opposite positions. So here are five things that aren't biblical persecution. Number one, when you post or say something that is overtly political in nature, for instance, defending your favorite politician or saying how they're God's man or God's choice or more godly than the other person or something like that. In other words, when you're blending religious and religion and politics and you catch flack for such statements, that's not really biblical persecution. It may be obnoxious. It may be uncalled for. It may hurt your feelings, but you aren't being persecuted in a biblical sense when you are making some sort of political stance. Now, I will note here, standing up for biblical truth is a different story entirely, but standing up for a political party or person is likely going to draw debate and disagreement, maybe even name-calling. Now, that's unpleasant, it's unfair, but it's not biblical persecution. And by the way, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't do that. I'm just saying when you combine uh, Christianity and your beliefs with politics, just don't expect that to go over well with everybody. That doesn't mean they're persecuting you. That may just mean they're being jerks to you. But persecution doesn't happen because of our political beliefs and our political uh, people we support. Number two, when you express your Christian faith and beliefs in an overly harsh or angry or defensive or attacking way, and people clap back on your attitude, then you're not being persecuted for your godliness. You're being rebuffed because of your attitude. Think about 1 Peter 2, 19-20. Peter writes, For what credit is there if you, when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. So doing something wrong and getting in trouble for it, or, or people attacking you for it, that's not persecuting. It's worth noting that attitude and tone matter immensely in the Bible. Sharing truth with a haughty and arrogant tone is not at all godly, and when people call you out for it, it's likely the haughtiness they are reacting to, not your belief. In some, if you are being a jerk, even a truthful jerk, and you suffer for it, you aren't being persecuted. You're kind of reaping what you sow. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. Now, if you're speaking the truth in love and you're suffering for that, that sounds like persecution. Number three, 
If somebody disagrees with you on a doctrinal position, for instance, baptism by immersion or sprinkling, spiritual gifts continue or they've ceased, free will versus sovereignty, etc., as long as it's just a disagreement, this does not constitute persecution. Now, if you are a group of Reformed people who believe in infant baptism and not believer's baptism, and you take somebody who believes in believer's baptism and literally tie his hands and feet behind his back and secure them to a pole and throw them off of your boat into the river so that they drown literally and die in that river for their beliefs, then yes, That absolutely is persecution, and it's also cold-blooded murder, and it's exactly what Zwingli and the Swiss Reform did to the Anabaptist Felix Mons during the Protestant Reformation. Yes, that's persecution. It's worse than persecution, but it's definitely persecution. Number four, when the Starbucks barista or greeter at Walmart says, Happy Holidays to you instead of Merry Christmas, this does not constitute persecution. Number five, And I think this one might be controversial, so I can't speak with with a big blanket statement, but I'll say it this way. I think in most instances, the government not allowing church gatherings during the coronavirus pandemic is not persecution. Now, there are some areas where I think it might be borderline. There's definitely a constitutional question that needs to be raised and discussed. Can the government even tell churches what to do in this case? But them trying does not seem to be persecution when the same order applies to all other gatherings of people and not just some. Now, that said, I really do question that liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries count as essential businesses, which they do in California. I would argue that the church is far more essential to mental and spiritual health than alcohol and marijuana. In fact, most experts would argue that I think they would argue, maybe times have just changed that much, but most experts would argue that alcohol and marijuana are not particularly great for mental health, especially when they're overused. So I disagree with some of the orders in those ways. I just don't believe they measure up to persecution. So the bottom line, I think Christians should be prudent, wise, and judicious about the use of the word persecution. Not every bit of unpleasantness we endure is because of persecution. Another example, you have a professor that's not a Christian and they don't agree with your Christian beliefs. Now, as long as they're not a jerk to you, as long as they don't single you out above all other people because of your Christian beliefs, as long as it's merely a disagreement, that's not persecution. It's a disagreement. So let me give five facts about biblical persecution. Number one, Jesus says that you are blessed when people persecute you. That's Matthew 5, 11 through 13. We already referred to this verse. It says, you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Number two, persecuted people in particular have great shelter and refuge in God. He is near the brokenhearted and he is a refuge for those that are persecuted. So says Psalms 9, 9, and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Number three, if people are hostile to Jesus and his teachings, they will be hostile to us. At least they should be. If they are open to Jesus, they should be open to us. Jesus says this in John fifteen twenty. Remember this word I spoke to you, 
The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will also keep yours. Now, there's a pastor near us uh, where, where we live. I'm in Salinas, California. We're about, I don't know, 40 minutes or so away from Santa Cruz, California. And there's a pastor there named Dan Kimball. And he wrote a very interesting book I read over a decade ago that was called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. The premise of the book is that unchurched people really appreciated Jesus, but found a lot of hypocrisy and bad attitudes in the church. Now, the fact is, friends, is that we Christians should track one-to-one with Jesus in terms of persecution. In other words, we should present as humble and merciful and kind in the same way that Jesus did, so that if people attack us and persecute us, it's not because we're prideful, haughty, arrogant, judgmental, or whatever. It's because of our teachings. And yes, the gospel will be a stumbling block. And it's supposed to be a stumbling block. And if people want to attack us because of the gospel, that's great. Great is our reward for that. That's actually good news, even though it's really hard to go through. But if people uh, have a hard time with us because of our attitude, our character, our personality, we want to avoid that sort of thing. Number four, persecution as bad as it is, and it's bad, it's bad. It has no power to separate us from Christ. Romans 8.35, Paul writes, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of those things can. Finally, number five, how are Christians called to respond to persecution? Surprisingly enough, the Bible says, with blessings and goodwill. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So let's tag in Dr. Thomas Schreiner, a pastor and seminary professor, to help us better understand what exactly persecution is and how Christians should deal with it. And Dr. Schreiner says, quite often I hear people say that Christians aren't being persecuted in the United States. And what they mean by that is that we aren't suffering physically for our faith, by and large, in contrast to so many Christians in other parts of the world. I recognize, of course, that there is a significant difference between what is happening to Christians here and to Christians elsewhere who are sacrificing their lives or being tortured for their faith. Still, says Schreiner, it isn't exactly right to say that Christians in the United States are free from persecution. We should be more precise. We are mostly free from physical persecution. Now consider what 1 Peter says about the suffering of believers. In this salvation in Christ, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Later on, Peter writes, so this is in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter doesn't just use the word persecution to describe what the readers are experiencing, but they are clearly suffering for their faith, and that is another way of saying they're being persecuted. They are being slandered for being Christians, 
they are also maligned for not indulging in the same lifestyle as unbelievers. Peter says they shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trials they face. But here's the crucial point to see in these passages. Peter says nothing about physical suffering when he describes the difficulties his readers were experiencing. They were criticized by people in the world. They may have experienced some persecution from governing authorities, and they were certainly out of step with society, but nothing is said about believers being put to death or flogged or stoned. In fact, Peter makes no mention of any kind of physical mistreatment. We see something similar in the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Notice how Christians were maligned, criticized, and rejected for not following the societal ethos of their day. In the same way today, many are astonished that we have such a restrictive sexual ethic, for instance. Many contemporaries think we are detrimental to society, and many in the Roman world thought the same thing about Christians. They oppose us because we don't approve the sin that is celebrated in many quarters, as it says in Romans 1.32. So, what did the persecution look like? The maltreatment Peter talks about consists of verbal abuse and presumably included unjust discrimination in everyday life. Even though they weren't experiencing physical abuse, they were genuinely suffering. When persecuted, we are tempted to threaten and seek revenge, but we are called to endure suffering as Christ did, and to entrust final judgment to God, 1 Peter 2.23. We are to love those who hate us and show them kindness and grace, the same kindness and grace our Savior lavished upon us. As Christians in the United States, we also experience suffering since we are maligned for our faith. The persecution may be relatively light. We recognize that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face something much more severe than what we are experiencing, but all believers in Christ are persecuted in one way or another. Verbal abuse and various forms of discrimination are still suffering, according to 1 Peter. None of us knows what the future holds for believers in the United States, and Dr. Schreiner wrote this, I think, in 2015. But Peter exhorts us in his first letter to be ready for fiery trials, to follow the pattern of our Lord and Savior, and to live a life by a faith that knows with certainty that eternal glory comes after this moment of suffering. After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So says 1 Peter 5.10. And that is a wonderful verse for all who are suffering right now to stand on. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5.10 We continue in Leviticus 24, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Command the Israelites to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light, in order to keep the lamp burning regularly. Aaron is to tend it continually from evening until morning before the Lord, outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. He must continually tend the lamps on the pure gold lampstand in the Lord's presence. Take the fine flour and bake it into twelve loaves. Each loaf is to be made with four quarts. Arrange them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Place pure frankincense near each row so that it may serve as a memorial portion for the bread and a food offering to the Lord. The bread is to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath day as a permanent covenant obligation on the part of the Israelites. 
It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in a holy place, for it is the holiest portion for him from the food offerings to the Lord. This is a permanent rule. Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father was among the Israelites. A fight broke out in the camp between the Israelite woman's son and an Israelite man. Her son cursed and blasphemed the name of God, and they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, a daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody until the Lord's decision could be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Bring the one who is cursed to the outside of the camp, and have all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then have the whole community stone him, and tell the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native. If a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, life for life. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, but whoever kills a person is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the resonant alien and the native, because I am the Lord your God. After Moses spoke to the Israelites, they brought the one who had cursed to the outside of the camp and stoned him. So the Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the mind. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't say, why were the former days better than these, since it is not wise of you to ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun, because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. In my futile life I have seen everything. Some one righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous, and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked, and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. I have tested all this by wisdom. I resolved I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? 
I turn my thoughts to know, explore, and examine wisdom and an explanation for things, and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, her heart a net and her hands chains. The one who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Look, says the teacher, I have discovered this by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation which my soul continually searches for, but does not find. I found one person in a thousand, but none of those was a woman. Only see this, I have discovered that God made people upright but they pursued many schemes. Psalm chapter 31, verse 1. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love, because you have seen my affliction, you know the troubles of my soul, and have not handed me over to the enemy. You have set my feet in a spacious place. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration. My whole being is well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my ears years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and even by my neighbors. I am dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. I am forgotten, gone from memory like a dead person, like broken pottery. I have heard the gossip of many terrors on every side. When they conspire against me, they plotted to take my life, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me by your faithful love. Lord, do not let me be disgraced when I call on you. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them be quiet and shale. Let lying lips that arrogantly speak against the righteousness and righteous and proud contempt be silent. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. In the presence of everyone, you have acted for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his faithful love to me. In a city under siege, in my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful ones. The Lord protects the loyal, but fully repays the arrogant. Be strong and let your heart be courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. That is a good, good ending. Be strong, brothers and sisters. And let your heart be courageous, all of you who put your hope in the Lord. For hope in the Lord is a sure and certain foundation. God bless you on this Monday and Godspeed to you.